When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Lovely intro. Um, thank you for showing up today. Like um, she said, I'm Jennifer Justice, also known as JJ, and I host um, a podcast called Taking Care of Lady Business. Today we have Leah Goldman. Leah uh, is also a very good friend of mine, so if you have any inside jokes, please, we apologize already for that. Um, <laughs> um, we won't be taking any questions, too, because I'm sure she's going to be talking uh, saying a lot of things that are really interesting. You might have some questions afterwards. So, with that, we'll get started. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, for showing up. Thanks for having me. This is, let me preface by saying this is very unusual, because I'm usually on the other end interviewing other people. I'm a long-time media vet. I worked at Forbes Magazine for 10 years where, um, I, you know, I give, I give my title the sexification title. I was a billionaire hunter. I worked on their billionaire list, so I traveled the world looking for billionaires. I ran their celebrity list and their hip-hop list and their, you know, all sorts of lists that Forbes uh, is famous for. After that, I went over to Marie Claire Magazine where I um, was an editor and I ran their Women at Work section, which is how I met JJ. Um, and then I went to uh, Refiner29, which is a leading millennial women's site, and I ran their news group. And after that, I pivoted. I decided I wanted to write more, so I started working on some scripted stuff. I did a stint at iPart Media, where I worked in the podcast space. I, I wrote a one man show. And now I'm at Go Media, Geo Media where I oversee about 10 sites. You've probably heard of at least one of them. Deadspin, Gizmodo, Jezebel, The Onion, Lifehacker, a bunch of them. It's not really big. <laughs> and so as you can tell, either there was a thread of media throughout her entire career, but there's a lot of going back and forth, right? Traditional media, digital media, you know, I think most of us here have lived through this entire back and forth, like what it's gonna mean, et cetera. So walk us through a little bit. So what I find interesting, and I, I feel like a lot of people, you, you come out of college, you start a career, and you kind of stay there. Like, I'm an accountant, that's what I do. I'm a lawyer, that's what I do. My career has been many times. I don't really practice law that much anymore. But, you know, I do a lot of executive uh, roles and strategy and development. Like, walk us through what kind of media, and then how you saw that change. Sure, we can break it down a little bit as So, despite my youthful appearance, I'm old enough to have started in traditional media, which is basically magazines, when magazines were still a thing. 
but I found that the through line of my career, all these twists and turns that my career has taken, were really, you could distill to, you know, the very simple fact that the companies I went to work for were in a transition stage. They were on the, you know, on the cusp of some big thing that was either undermining the business or revolutionizing the business. So the print magazines were going through the digital, you know, the digital revolution. When I was at um, Hearst, they were dealing with the rise of social media influencer culture and what that meant to fashion. Um, when I was at Refinery, they were dealing with the explosion of um, bloggers and how those social media influencers were launching their own platforms, which would then compete with Refinery29's audience. Um, when I was at iHeart, they were dealing, iHeart is a traditional, the biggest radio broadcaster in the nation, they were dealing with the rise of podcasting. Uh, and so all these companies were at this, you know, fork in the road, and I always found myself, you know, whether I landed there fortuitously or I was attracted to those things, you could make a case for both, but I like being at companies that are in that, the throes of, you know, what traditionally scares people. If you watch Game of Thrones, you're going to know this reference, I believe chaos is a ladder, and I think that in those moments you really, you know, you can either be afraid of them or you can seize the moment. And I enjoy, I enjoy change. Um, it unsettles people, but I always think that there's an opportunity in those weird, chaotic moments to just find something and just find something new to work on, volunteer for something new. They're always looking for people to expand their repertoire, and usually what you find in organizations like that is most people are like this. No, this is what I do. I don't do anything else, but if you embrace the change, you'll find that um, a lot of new opportunities that can expand your portfolio, your, uh, your career, those are, they like, they like right in front of you. So that's really, you know, why I have a, what some, like in the old days, you might say my career has been a little meandering or circuitous, but I don't think so at all. I think, you know, I can make a case for having worked at media. I'm a... Um, what people would say an agent of change. I work with organizations that are in the throes of change. By the way, the little footnote here is that if you're ever in a job interview and you ever face a question like that, like your career seems like it's all over the place, like or, you know, or you don't seem very focused, you say actually, quite the contrary. You know, actually, my career is all about taking those changes and finding new. That's what I do. Is I'm I'm the person in your office that is the one who jumps into the change, not who runs away from it. So I found that that that's always served me well. I love that. Did you know that when you were like, when did you put all those pieces together? You know, because I feel like so many people are like, oh, but, you know, I I want to do something different, but I don't know. Like, how did you know there was there a process that you knew about this? No, it was not a process. But I I feel like I talked to enough people because I spent my career interviewing people that it became it dawned on me at some point that that I was not just interviewing to, to do a story to write a story, but I was interviewing to fill some gaps in my own knowledge. And that I could use those moments to inform my own career. And so I would ask people personal questions that were not for the writer. You know, that uh, how did you deal with, say, having kids? Or how did you deal with, you know, the own gaps in your, you know, when you were laid off or when you were fired? And I, um, I don't know, I guess I used it to help just, you know, fill in some, just fill in some gaps in my own, you know, understanding of how I could get ahead. So there wasn't an aha moment. I will say that 
when you asked the question, the first thing that came to mind is that I've interviewed a lot of young people in the course of my career for job interviews, for internships, and things like that. And more often than not, they have resumes exactly like you think they have. They come from whatever schools or journalism schools. They have very traditional backgrounds for the roles that they're seeking. But every now and again, I get someone in front of me who said, you know, I'll say, well, what kind of internships did you have for this job? And I said, I didn't have an internship because I worked. I had to put my way through college, and I had to, so I waitressed all summer. You know, I'm a work study, so I had to work. I didn't have the opportunity to work at the student newspaper. And those people always interested me, because when you dug a little deeper, there was a very fascinating story. Oh, my mom's on disability, and I have to send home some checks. Or, um, you know, I'm a product of a divorced family, and so I'm responsible for helping my parents at their restaurant, or whatever it was. And I found that story much more interesting than you know, I went to NYU and worked on a student paper. Those people had more character, frankly. And so I started, when I realized, when that, those pieces started to come together, I started to tell people, you are the writer of your own stories. And I would tell this to people who came to me for interviews or for internships or things like that. You get to tell the story however you'd like. So no one's going to look at your resume and say, oh, you're data, you're data guy, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. The story of my career is that I'm the I'm the person who uncovers efficiencies. I'm the person who, you know, I'm the talent spotter. Throughout my career, I'm the person who can always tell the next, you know, who can find the next leader in our group. That's mine. So you you get to tell that story, um, and so you don't need the traditional checklist of, of what you know you've been hearing for the last 23 years about what it takes to get ahead. You get to invent that. You get to tell that story. Amazing advice. Yeah, we know we're going to get there so fast. But I, you know, and, but the, the difference between traditional media and digital, right, is that like you know you have to wait those couple of weeks until the next thing came out. Like it wasn't like you know it wasn't like immediate. Everything was immediate, and then you move to something where it's like if you are the first person, like they're all competing. You have to get your notification that everybody that has this news, and we'll get to what that really means today. But I think it's also how long you started a certain amount of years ago, you weren't supposed to be bragging about yourself like this. You weren't supposed to be telling that narrative. You weren't supposed to be like, I'm really good at this one thing. You know, and it took me a long time. My career, I started in music entertainment. I was a music entertainment attorney. Um, I started with a very then unknown Jay-Z. We came up and did this, this business together. And I went to Rock Nation. I was technically the lawyer, but the lawyers in music don't um, they, they don't really, I mean, and artists and music don't really have anything to do with their life or they have nothing to do with their music, their recorded music, their songwriting, their sponsorship endorsement, nothing. That was me. I did all of this and I was representing a bunch of different artists. Then I realized I had my thing and I was like, what am I really good at? Why am I succeeding? What makes me good at it? And I realized I would marry art and commerce. I knew how to take what they did and turn it into money and furnishes. And I came from a single teenage walker mother, and a lot of my clients came from that same background, and I knew how to talk to people about something that is, is like, is like, is like a, being a lawyer, and talk to them in a way that they did not feel stupid, or and that they could understand, and could break it down in a way so that they understood that it was like, I'm from the same place, you know what I mean? And so whatever it is that you have, that special thing, now, A, okay to brag by yourself, oh, yes. <laughs> and it's okay because, you know, and, and to say, like, this is the thing that I have. And, you know, most, as you can tell by the 
the title of my podcast, Taking Care of Lady Business, I started it because I, put, I started seeing women going like not really talking about themselves and not really um, knowing what part of the quote unquote team they're in. Whereas men, a lot of times you, you grow up in team sports, you either play them, you like them, you manage them, you play fantasy leagues with them, etc. You know, women, we don't do that. And so it's like, it's hard to find that place in your team. You don't know if you're the, obviously basketball, right? The center of point guard, you know, the manager or like the world's biggest fan, you know what I mean? Uh, and there's a place for everybody. And so to do that, that's like finding your special skill. And it's such amazing advice though, to do that. And like find what that is. So whenever you're talking to anybody, whether that's a potential employer, client, you know, or whatever, whatever, like, you know, that's what you're going to scale it. Yeah. The only thing I'd add to that is that you don't need just one. No, no, no. So I have found that, you know, for me, I'm a reporter by trade and also by nature. I like to ask people questions and curious about their backgrounds and, you know, everybody has a story to tell and I like to hear those stories. Um, but I'm also a connector and I found this out probably halfway through my career I had um, you know, I had some bumps in my own, you know, in the road, and so, and then I, you know, say I was looking for a job or I needed to change something. I needed something, and I would look through my Rolodex and I'd amass this pretty impressive Rolodex of people I'd interviewed over the course of my career, but was too afraid to hit them up for anything. And I had I had this like my aha moment, which was what's the point of having these contacts you can't use them? What's the point of having these contacts you can't use them? And I think. I do believe that women in particular are uncomfortable with that idea, or are uncomfortable with the idea of like tapping a contact if you have nothing else to give them. But we're all grown-ups and I think, you know, there's an understanding um, that down the road you can be helpful, right? That if everyone is sort of aware of what the rules of the road are and they ask you for a favor and you know down the road you can ask me for anything because you'll have done me a favor. So we have to get past this. I think generally people need to get past this mindset of, you know, oh, well, I can't ask him to do that because I don't have anything to offer him. Or, you know, why would he give me anything? So, Flor, you will never underestimate how far flattery will get you. I was just talking to someone this morning about this who, you know, I'm very good at writing emails. I'm very good at, you know, oh, I'm such a big fan of your work. I saw, you know, I do my homework. I saw you on this clip. I thought that was a great interview that you did. I love this question. People open up shells. You know, they love, people just, you know, they appreciate when someone takes an interest in that. So, you know, you start greasing the wheels a little bit and you can ask for a favor. I need to, can you introduce me to sell this This is what I need. This is what I'm looking for. Do you mind introducing me? Um, and, uh, you know, even when I don't have anything to give back, I find that it's, it's served me well. People have done those yeah. things for me, and I've tried to leverage that opportunity. And it's a big learning point of business in general about talking about giving back because, you know, another kind of quality a lot of women do is we ask, you know, we offer things for free, which we should not. You know, anybody should. Like, if you're giving somebody something and it's some value, there is always something you give them, whether or not that is. You know, I've, I've had uh, people, you know, send me a $10 Starbucks thing, you know what I mean? Which, I don't, I don't go to Starbucks, but there's one in my corner, my kids wanted croissants one day, so I bought them croissants at Starbucks. You know, there's things that you can do to get back, and, and they will remember. And it's just tiny little little things up to, you know, bigger deals. If you're helping somebody who makes a ridiculous amount of money or getting them a big job, you know, there's a way that you can compensate them. And that is 
is a way that you can build that kind of loyalty and network and trust become known to that person who, you know, helps each other out, but like, you know, also if you do something for them, you're gonna get something for them, you know? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being a little transactional. No, there's nothing wrong with business is business, and that's one of the things that's like, yes, you can have fun in business, you can make friends in business, you can find love in business, you can do all of those things, but ultimately business is business. We build our personal time and our friends and family to have, to understand what that relationship is like, but business is business. And, you know, I, I say this to a lot of my clients as well, it's like, you know, when they say, well, I shouldn't ask for money, they say they don't have it. Well, that has nothing to do with you. You were there, you were working all day long, you deserve yeah. raise. That is for them to tell you no, and for them to tell you why, okay? That they made certain choices that they don't have the money. That has nothing to do with you. Unless you own that company, there's nothing to do with you. And if they say no, then say, okay, when? How much am I going to get then? And then, you know, if they give you all the answers that are not going to satisfy you, then you are perfectly okay to start looking for a new job and they cannot be surprised at you because you've basically given them notice that you are not happy and that you deserve more. And if you put that into perspective in, a, in another way, it helps. I, I always give also the example of my kids. Like, you know, I'm a single mom to nine-year-old twins. You know, I think anybody with kids knows that you would, you know, possibly harm another person to keep them safe, right? You, like, you care so much about them. So, if somebody is, you know, and you're spending all this time at a job, an employer, and they're not compensating you or treating you for work, who are they really taking away from if you don't really feel like that worth is yours and deserves? So they're taking away from your kids, right? And that, to me, is just not acceptable. So, if you can't muster whatever it is confidence, you know, to do it yourself, you can think of, like, okay, they're, you know, they're taking my time away from me and they're not giving and properly paying me to be away from them. And that helps bring that bravado and gravitas to the negotiations and you can be like, yeah, you know what, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put up with this. Like, that it's offensive to my kids and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this anymore. And there's ways to do that. So we have, like, we talk a lot about it in the Take Care Lane business and in the Justice Department about how you can get over this feeling of, not feeling worthy enough, we're not asking for enough. And those are you know, ways I find are extremely effective for people who are just not feeling in particular up COVID. Exhausted, right? It's like I don't want to argue anymore. I don't want to like just want it to be easy. I will say that I, I am very familiar and comfortable with rejection though. No. I feel like it's you know, it's part of my career, it's you know, certainly as I pivot to entertainment, it's something you have to get comfortable with. Um, like it, you know, and at first it was painful. I was joke. I I've kept every rejection letter for job. I still get emails from. I remember during COVID, I uh, just on the lark, I applied Delta was hiring. And I still get emails from them for Delta Alert. And I was thinking of like collecting them because they send out a lot of emails of you know making wallpaper out of it because it was just it reminds me of like the time I just you know took a swing at something and wanted to just see what would happen. Reminds me of the, the risk taking, of the benefits of risk taking and looking at posture and trying to think. But, you know, in general, I think women, but probably people generally, spend too much time fretting when they ask for, in advance of asking for a raise or a promotion. It does, does the email sound right? What time of day should I do it? Is he in a good mood? Can I, you know, what if he fires me? Which is never going to happen for asking for a raise. Um, and so I suggest just kind of walk, you know, playing out that scenario in your head. 
And you realize the worst case scenario is getting a no. And then, you know, okay, so you go back to your desk and you say, all right, well, information is power. What next? Do I want to stay here? Where do I want to go? And at least now you have more information than you did when you walked into the room. And you can make your next step, you know, in a more informed way. Yeah. Sage advice again. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to, you know, where you're going now in the media in general, right? You know, I was kind of talking a little bit before, like, you know, before you like, wait, wait for whatever it was. I would wait for the next Rolling Stone because I love music, you know, to come out. I would wait for the next whatever magazine or whatever it was, you know, to find this information. Now everything is so great and, and so clickbaiting that it's like, is it even new, you know? And I know you love this topic, so yes, I would love, I would love to hear from you where you think media is today, now, and that this transition. Yeah. Have your just thoughts on it. Sure. So I'll preface this discussion, this discussion by saying that I worked in television for a few years. I was at Lifetime Television. Another fork in the road, syndicated cable. You know, for decades that was a very, very slush business. Now it's being you know, undermined by streamers who are eroding business, also young people who don't watch cable. So that was an interesting experience. And I got to understand the business of television and walking in, why is that relevant to this discussion? Because I just assumed content was content. You know, content is the same. We're all in the business of content. But in fact, it's a very different world. And I, I walk, you know, we're in this moment now where media companies are going into entertainment. You see the New York Times is producing podcasts documentaries and entertainment companies are becoming media companies. Netflix is trying, you know, very famously because they just started laying off people, has been trying to create uh, a digital magazine. All, you know, Lifetime was creating an editorial unit, which is why I went over there. So you see this convergence of entertainment is, you know, and media are sort of meeting here. But they don't talk the same language. So media people and entertainment people, we, we don't, it's not the same values that go into greenlighting a project. So in news and media, it's everything's driven by what's new. So fashion, music, celebrity, all of that, new, new. The windows are always open in media organizations because they have to figure out what's new and they have to report on it. Entertainment is not, it's like the antithesis. New is the end. Entertainers are afraid of what's new. It's what worked. So that's why you see the same stars, the same formats. The same reality, same cooking shows, just 20 different versions of the same cooking shows. Because it's so expensive to produce a show that fails that they try to hedge their bets. And they hedge their bets by using the same stars and the same formats. So it's very different. And so when I went over to work in entertainment, it was a little bit of a, I was a little shell-shocked because I went in with a media mindset into an entertainment world and we didn't all speak the same language. Why is that important now? Because I think that's what you're seeing. I think what you're seeing is the failure of some entertainment companies who thought, well, content is content. We can all do this. And didn't understand the metabolism of media, didn't understand the, uh, the way media is consumed, and that newness, because nothing takes longer than producing a piece of entertainment. Nothing. A TV show, a film, these things can take years. Entertainment, two hours, max. You gotta get it out the door. Gotta get that post up, gotta get that article up. And so everything about those two worlds is very different and now you're seeing that flash head on. And media is not used to the cost of entertainment. 
you know, the, um, the, what, the metrics of success, so a podcast has to have like hundreds of thousands of downloads in order to be successful. So these are all new phenomena in both these industries as they converge. Where do I think media is going? I have no clue. I'm a gossip. I follow, I ask everybody for goss. I call goss and goss. So whenever I meet someone in either industry, I just try to pick their brains, find out what's going on, who's hiring, who's firing, who's on the verge, who's on the apps, and just make my way over in that direction. And nothing, I mean, I don't think anybody knows, right? That's just it. It's like, I feel like it's, it's coming this full circle because, yes, it's like, you know, in the music industry, I mean, albums used to take a very long time. We have producers, they'd be in the studio forever. The sound quality would like meant so much. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, YouTube. Well that yeah, is YouTube. It was YouTube and you know, Tidal was really starting with Jay and Jay Z and Jack White in particular really wanted to be a part of it because of the sound quality. Jack White spends still to this day on vinyl, this there's weights of vinyl. A way that like he can't possibly ever make the money back. <laughs> like it is not possible because of the, you would have to spend so much money to buy a vinyl that he doesn't care because he knows the price point for it. And then come to find out that like you know no one really cares. Like you know unless you're a total audiophile, people are finally listening to songs that came out of TikTok, YouTube, out of your computer. Like no one cares as much anymore. And so you have this dichotomy of like. You know, like people trying to spend all of this, but at the same time, I can't, even with podcasts, right? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought before, a before this, like I do a podcast, you know, I started, I only started this one six months ago, but I would have to show up at a place and be there live, even though it wasn't even video. And I was like, why am I sitting in front of you? But it was all about the idea. COVID hit, and everyone's like, whatever. Yes. It doesn't matter. I film mine on Zoom. No yes. one cares. So during COVID, I was between jobs and at home like everybody else was. And I'm a creative, like I like to do things. So I bought um, you know, a $50 mic and um, taught myself how to use some software, Descript and something else, I forget. And you know, it took me a couple days to get comfortable with it, but it's not difficult. And I decided I was gonna start a podcast call, and I called it Has My Hotel, because everybody was home, so Has My Hotel. And I just went through that Rolodex and started interviewing people lied my ass off about what my audience was. I'm on season two of a podcast that did not exist, and nobody did the homework. It's easy enough to... So I got some interviews, and it started to take off, and I liked it. I like being, you know, my mind... I like exercising my mind a little bit. I say this because I am a terrible editor. I'm not an audio editor, but I found some music on YouTube, and I, you know, kind of made some audio and fade-ins, and it's really rough, but nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares. Right? Like, when you're listening to the radio, I don't know that there's that fine an appreciation for really good sound quality and mediocre sound quality. I think audiences will eventually get there and they'll start to understand the difference between something that's highly produced and something that's not, but I don't think we're there yet. So, in that regard, I thought, I think I've learned a lot from the experience. I've learned how to produce a podcast. Now I say I'm a podcast producer. And it's opened up another avenue of it's opened up another avenue of job opportunities because I've produced a podcast, which I have. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think I think these are still very early days of podcasting. Um, all right, so now you've got a line on your yeah, resume. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 
All right, so, you know, but what about the clickbait of news? Look, I, I'm as much a, uh, I'm guilty of this as much as probably anyone here. I read a headline, I retweet a headline, I often don't read the story. I bet everybody in this room is guilty of that. Um, and in part, it's because news is now structured to give you as much information. I work in digital media even still, and I can tell you there's no way, you know, in magazines you used to do these apocryphal, arty headlines. You know, that was part of the art of magazines, were these beautifully designed headlines. No. Now it's be the news, you know, Britney Spears won her case, boom. You don't need to read that article because you just have the news. So in a lot of ways, this is the, the both the inevitable result of and the challenge of media organizations. We pushed you in this direction and now we have problems because we can't get you back. You know, we pushed you to that, you know, to only consume the headlines and now you won't read anything else. So I don't have an easy answer for it except that I, it's not going away. Uh, I'm watching Medium very closely and also um, Substack. I know a lot of my old colleagues who've gone to Substack to produce their own newsletters and very, very few of them are succeeding. I was watching very closely. I'm like, is this a, is this a viable way to? Let's go into that a little bit. Because like, I don't even know much about it. There's a lot. What is the pop <laughs> You know, like there <laughs> used to be the pop. Like you would, be, you have to really. There was always these double entendres and these, um, you know, very arty ways of uh, deciphering what a headline meant. You don't. You cannot. Media will die in that headspace now. You have to give it to the audience. This is why, by the way, main of my existence right now is the New York Times. Every Saturday, I dissect the Times. You can follow me on Instagram, Lee Jingleman. I do under, under the auspices of Hasbro Hotel. I dissect the Times every Saturday, and the, the Times magazine is like the bane. It's like it's my white whale. I can't stand what's happened to the Times magazine because it's, it's a. You know, it's a relic of a, of a time in media that just doesn't exist, and I find it the height of pretentiousness that the Times Magazine still lives as if it's 1990, and still expects audiences to pour over a magazine on a Saturday morning when you don't have kids to take to the game, when you don't have dishes in the sink, when you don't have a million other things to do, and they still do. You can go look at the Times Magazine from this past weekend and you'll see a headline that literally will tell you nothing about the story. That you'll have to go to the, find the page, read the head, and it's always really small, arty font, and then read the deck, and it's always really small, arty font, you still don't know what the story is about. And I can't stand that. I think it's, you know, I think it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's haughty. Like, how dare you think that my time is so, you know, that I have so much time to just devote to you of all things. I just can't, I can't stand that. You know, and it bothers me because it's like, it's the best, one of the best magazines on the planet. And it has what no other magazine has. It doesn't have to live or die at the newsstand. It comes in the newspaper. The rest of us have to live or die at the newsstand. We have to sell ourselves. It doesn't have to do any of that. So it bothers me that it, that it takes, you know, that it exploits that, that it, that it takes it for granted. All right, so let's talk about mediums and stuff. First, like, what are they? Okay. Medium is a self-publishing platform. Any of you can post on it. Um, in fact, I tell young people who come for interviews, if they, if they, you know, oh, I don't have any clips, you can self-publish on Medium. So you can produce your own clips. So if you have friends or kids or whatever, you should tell them to do that. So Medium is self-publishing, and Substack is a newsletter platform, so you produce your own newsletter. And a lot of journalists are migrating to Substack because you can charge whatever you want a week, a month, whatever, and instead of working for the man, you can work for yourself. 
and you can create your own um, subscription base, but it's very, very hard because you don't have a brand. You don't have a platform that you can, you know, you can leverage. You don't have the time behind you. You don't have GeoMedia. You don't have Jezebel, Deadspin, this photo behind you. You're on your own. So it works well for people who have a huge following on social media, but even then it's work. You know, you have to feed the beast, as they say. Um, and so I've been following closely some of my colleagues who moved over there to see if it's viable, and so far it does not seem like a viable space to make a real living. It's a viable space to make some side income, um, but not really to make a living yet. Who's your audience? Do they push it out for their marketing? Yeah, I mean, for yourself. You are marketing. I mean, Substack has a few favored uh, authors that they promote, but it's okay. But generally speaking, you're on your own, so you market for your social media platforms and you know yada yada. The, I read recently a list of the top performers on Substack. I don't know where any of them are. I've never heard of them before. But you know, I think Faith Based does very well. On I think I read that somewhere. In general, Faith Based does very well in media. It's an underserved market for a lot of people. It's a meeting, right? It's all about finding a community for serious, right? Yeah, because let's be real. Media operates in New York and LA, and these are not communities that pay much attention to or regard the faith based community. So, your prediction for media consolidation, more consolidation, uh, which means more layoffs, more. Um, you know, less expensive projects, which I'm looking forward to, especially in audio and film. Everybody thinks they're HBO right now in audio. Everybody thinks they're HBO. That means they're spending like, you know, everybody thinks they're going to make a fortune on a podcast. And so the players that occupy the script, I'm talking scripted, not unscripted. Like there's Joe Logan, which is unscripted, which is just an interview, like this is unscripted. And then there's scripted stuff, like serial and stuff that's scripted. Everybody thinks they're going to make a mint an odd. And so you have this, this marketplace filled with HBO type players. And there's no one who's occupying that cheaper substrata, just like man down, like TNT, Lifetime, let's get her done. Yeah. So I think there's space there for more low cost players. What about just straight like um, media, digital media versus like consolidation? It's yeah. just, you know, it's a very, very hard business to operate in. It's still advertising driven. We're about to head into a downturn, it sounds like. Um, it's tough. It's tough. And I also wrestle with, um, and this is a bit of a provocative thing to say, but I wrestle with whether woke sells. You know, I, I wrestle with whether advertisers, like, it does seem that advertisers like a sort of sanitized version of woke. You know, like, it's June is Gay Pride Month, and yes, that's okay, but everything else is not okay. So I can't quite tell where advertisers will uh, net out in that. Is and a lot of the digital players are whoa. You know, I just wonder well, what the net result of all that is. Right. right. I guess we'll just have to see. Yes, I can't really answer the question. I know, but I mean, I, mean, I don't know that anybody yes. can. I don't think that anybody really saw it coming as much as we did. I mean, I know in the music industry where it was like. Oh, these like streaming things, nobody's really gonna do that. And now we just see everybody has an installed streaming thing. And then, uh, then you're like, okay, I cannot have a subscription to every single thing. Like, you gotta all bring it together. Yes. You know what I mean? And so it's like, goes out, comes together, goes out. I do think, you know, I'll only add this. I think we're in a star system of media. I have debates about this all the time in my office. Um, by that I mean, you know, the, the journalist or the podcaster is a personality. Everything's personality driven. Joe Rogan, 
call your daddy whenever you call. Yeah. You know, everything is driven by the personality of the person at the pen or behind the mic. And so if you have strong personality, that's a plus in your column. If you have a voice, that's a plus in your column. Um, because I think, you know, that translates into social media, which generates following. It just, it's, it's, you know, I just don't think we're ever going to go back to what I call the Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal model. You would be hard-pressed to name one person who works at Bloomberg. Not to diss Bloomberg. I know plenty of people that are hardworking, they're smart, they're talented. But it's not a star system. They don't reward their stars. They're just the New York Times, they get book deals, they get podcasts. They get shows, they get right. So I think, you know, and if you're a journalist, which, which would you prefer? <laughs> so True. I think we're in the star system and it's, that's, and it's not going away. Right. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. We're going to take some questions after this, but um, uh, one thing that I ask on the podcast every um, episode is because, as women in particular, we get a lot of this. What is the worst advice you've ever received? Ooh. I'm so used to answering the best advice. Uh, worst advice? Oh my God, JJ, why don't you prepare me? Well, you should. I know. Worst advice? <laughs> wait, you know, generally like wait. I'm not a big waiter. I don't like to wait. I'm impatient by nature. And you know, just a little plug for something. So aside from on Saturday has my hotel. This dear friend of mine, Rachel Sklar, came up with this idea called 52 Swings. And the idea is that every week, 52 weeks in a year, every week you take a swing. You reach out to someone, you apply for a job that might have been out of your, you know, you wouldn't have considered before. You try to make a lunch or coffee date with someone you've been dying to meet. Once a week, you take a swing, 52 swings. What are the odds that one of those swings is gonna work out with somebody? Pretty high, pretty high. So in a year, you might be able to achieve something that was impossible if you didn't take that swing. And I love it because after a while, taking risk becomes like, oh, I, it's you know, it's a new week. I got to take a swing, and you become inured to the idea of like, what's the big deal if I send out an email? I've gotten no's before. What's the big deal if I try for this job? Right. So that fear that keeps you from doing things it goes away after the third, fourth week. So you do two swings. Try it. Try it today. It's really like it's profoundly changed my life. I actually just, I think it was on New York once, uh, there's something about some guy who was like every day asking for something he could never get through, like walking to Starbucks and be like, can I have free coffee? And like, no. So he got so used to rejection. Did anybody else hear about that? I can't remember yet. Most of the days of rejection. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It's, yes, it's akin to that, and then you get so used to it, and then actually something eventually comes through. So 52 swings, I highly recommend it. I've got a lot of good meetings. I don't. I you know bad advice. Wait, you know. Oh, do this for that. You know, you should wait till the court. You know, the quarter is done. Yeah. You should wait for the earnings to come in. You should wait. I don't wait. I I I like I like knowing things. I like knowing now. It's a lot like mine. You just put your head down and work. It'll all come to you. Like no, 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 no. You get zero when you don't ask for. So that is the taping. Um, and then, but now we can have questions. Yeah, so you open the can of worms. Uh, you talk about reading the Substack. But I've seen it down for the years. Sites like Hidden Forces, where it shows where everyone is expert on everything. Oh, yeah. It's really nothing. They have taken many years for obviously. They had a good night in George. But they gave you the platform. And it's like, in your mind, frame your own composition, your own discourse about how to do it. That's the problem. Everybody's an expert on it. Climate change and other 
You know what he offered? You like tongue in cheek? You like saltiness? You like a little bit of celebrity? I don't want to be an expert in everything all the time. So what do you think this is going on? I don't think I'm going to focus on garden. So that, that's what I like to see. I mean, I'll confess that I, uh, you know, I'm as guilty of that as any other journalist. I spent, um, in, when I was at Ford, I used to go on Fox News and give stock recommendations. They had a TV show called Forbes on Fox. And if I tell you I had no business giving stock recommendations, I was not well-versed enough in any of those things to be doing that. But they trotted me out, and I would do that. And I, you know, I still think about that sometimes. It's not, nothing really has changed. A lot of people will, you know, look, I, I work with a lot of very talented, seasoned, experienced journalists, and that kind of uh, person takes the craft very seriously and does their homework and talks to people on both sides and then reports story. That's reporting. But what's not reporting is, uh, you know, talking to one side. We have a lot of opinion journalism today. I think that's really at the heart of what you're talking about. Opinion journalism, and even the even the, the phrasing is an oxymoron. Opinions are not journalism, but you have you know progressive sites, you have right wing sites, and this is opinion journalism. And so, what what do we have right now? We have populists that distrust media broadly. Why? Because they can't make the distinction that at 8 p.m. on CNN, when you're watching opinion journalists give their thoughts on the news, that there's a distinction between 12 p.m., which is hard news. I'm just giving you the news, airplane crash, uh, you know, murder rates, Biden in Ukraine. That's news versus opinion journalism. Why would anyone make that distinction between the noon hour and the 8 p.m. hour? Or is anyone whispering in their ear saying, that's opinion journalism, that's their evening primetime programming, and that's the real news. So we've all lost a sense of what's trustworthy. I myself, I, I rarely watch news anymore because I... You know, I, I can't stand it. I can't stand Fox and I can't stand MSNBC and there's very little in between. So I think that's the problem is, you know, the, the, the creep, the opinion creep in journalism. Uh, how can we access your podcast slash your Instagram? Also, will that's, be, that's the greatest question. <laughs> also, um, with the, uh, the push to NFT and metaverse, how is that going to um, correlate to the media? The media industry. Right? I can't believe you asked that. So you're, uh, you know, I'm laughing because I had this conversation this weekend. I am dabbling in NFTs. I don't really understand it, but I have this listserv, um, like an email listserv for women in media and entertainment. You know, women who've achieved a certain stature because I want to introduce them to each other in these two worlds that don't normally connect. And someone in the group had said, I'll, you know, she's very interested in NFTs, and she said, I'll host a, you know, a, a seminar for this group if you want to learn more. And I, offline, I scolded her. I said, you know, I don't want this group. It sounds scammy. I don't like it, you know. And she said, are you crazy? This is entertainment and media are moving in this direction. You have to understand it. I still don't know why I have to understand it, but it was validated by other women in the group who said, yes, we have to understand it. I can't answer that question. I don't know enough about it. But... Apparent, you know, it does seem apparent that you know, JJ's probably better suited to answer the question. Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, I actually do. I do more than dabble in it, but uh, it just—it's happening. It's like we're not even in the early adopter stage; we're in the innovation stage of it. And so, you know, NFT people are thinking that everybody owns an NFT. You know, people actually own an NFT in the world right now. Three hundred fifty thousand. Like, there's three hundred fifty thousand in a ten city block right here. It's not that much. 
but it's not going away. And you know, when it's the people who are in it, who have innovated it, who are making millions of dollars off of it, and continue to, you know, it's going to continue. I don't know how the media and that connect. I don't know. I, I know that there's conferences, right? I know that there's certain websites and Instagrams and social media that is dedicated to it. I don't think that there's there's the New York Times of it yet. There's no. It's super early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to answer your question, my podcast is available on all the platforms. You can check it out. It has my hotel. And then. Uh, you can just Google it. Yeah, it'll be on Apple and iHeart. Um, and then the my Instagram is open, so you can follow me, Leah J. Goldman. And every Saturday I do the Times. Yeah, okay. And you see the whole Twitter style of playing out with Elon Musk. You have a big opinion on this, didn't you? Did I? I mean, he's. I, so one of the sites that I help manage is, is Gizmodo, so he's a, which is a tech site, so he's a, a, a regular interest. How do I see it playing out? I think he's going to. I think people will lose interest in Twitter. I, you know, I, outside of journalists and you know certain pocket communities, political communities, I don't really see it used the way you know we followed Arab Spring. Remember that? Remember when Arab Spring happened and everybody was like, "Oh my God, this is a profound shift in the way we get news." It very and I think the next time after that that I remember literally like this on Twitter was um, when that guy, when the Boston Marathon bombers, they were searching for that. So I remember being on Twitter because everybody was updating. And then since then, you know what you know, it is? It's because you're not in it. It's, what he it's crypto Twitter now. So yes. I think that he bought it mainly to talk about Web3 because that's where the entire population is. And I was not on Twitter. I had a handle, but I never went on there. Um, and until I got into uh, Web3, and that's where it all exists. And I think that's where, that's going to be the medium for that. Yes, I mean, my, to that point, my feed is now consumed by crypto Twitter and journals touting something. Crypto and journal. Crypto yeah. journal. And all the journalism stuff is part of it. It's all political. It's not, uh, it's not any other news besides political. So outside of those communities, that's not entirely true. I think Black Twitter is very strong, but um, you know, it's not. Uh, I just in ten years, it's hard to imagine. I don't know. I don't see myself on it, but I'm not really the demo anymore. I don't think. Anyone else? Uh, yeah, I have a colleague who is for a new job, but last uh, positions have been exposing cultures and the colleague is very nice and telling me that transitioning to the next position is going to be that it too will be a toxic culture. How what kind of advice can I give to those individuals that could help that individual mindset given individuals with the experience to these toxic cultures? That's a topic. Is because it's like so much of the patriarchal system is built on that way of learning, and uh, it's like I find that even the younger companies, as much as they want to learn from the investors that like invest in them, you know. The one thing is there's so many resources now from Glassdoor yes. and etc. And so like to do enough research online to see, um, and you know, people uh, and you know, sharing stuff anonymously and otherwise to, to you know, be able to see what the culture is really like. 
um, but you're not going to know until you get there. But you, you know, look, you used to just go in and you know you would take your chance, but now there's an entire it's all Googleable, right? It's all available. A lot of this information. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. There's you can do your homework, which seems like you know the obvious answer, but also there's well, JJ and I are a little older, a little wiser. Does anyone like how often do you meet someone? Love it. You know, most people don't love their job. I hate to say that. Some people do, and I envy those people. I sort of envy those people the way I envy like couples who just knew at first sight, right? Like they're so rare to meet people like that. You know, most people don't love their job. There is the subset that hate their job because it's you know tolerable because it's toxic, you know, for culture. But for the most part, we all occupy this gray area where we're like, oh, I can't wait for the weekend. And so then it's just managing it and carving out the, the things that make it tolerable. You know, when I was at Forbes, it was mostly men. You could count on two hands how many women there were. And it was, you know, it was like you can imagine, like that kind of a throwback to a madman kind of era. And I used to just eat at the nicest restaurants in town and charge a coffee for because that was the era of the expensive count lunch. And that's how I made it manageable. And I loved it. I ate at every Bobby Flay restaurant. I ate at, you know, I saw John Stewart at Strip House. Like, I loved it. And that was how, you know, that job worked for me because I ate very well. I ate very well. In other words, <laughs> yeah, figure out how she can make it work for her or me. Sorry. Yeah. Um, anything else? Thank you, everyone, for showing up.